originally the plan for the podcast was, and I even bought all the equipment and the cases was that I was actually going to travel all around Europe and talk to people in person and all this. And then the pandemic hit. And so, so now I've been sitting here with these beautiful Pelican cases and lots of travel gear that I haven't been able to travel. Right. Well, there will come a day. Well, but I've been able to get access to people such as yourself who I would not be able to physically travel to very easily. Yeah, I'm now in the middle of nowhere. I used to be, for 30 years, I was based in New York City, which would probably be on most people's maps of places they wanted to visit if they were going to connect with the photography crowd or the art world. But now I live in a small town between Vail and Aspen, Colorado. So I'm kind of poised between the super rich. You said it, not me. It's true. That is a very wealthy neighborhood, yes. I've found I can occasionally hitch rides on private jets, <laughs> which didn't happen when I was in New York. People would say, fly commercial. <laughs> that sounds like fun, though. Yeah, I uh, share a place in Scotland with a woman who's a sculptor, and I keep thinking I'd love to get polar bear over to Scotland. We have sheep, we have cattle, we are on a 14,000-acre estate that abuts Her Royal Highness's 50,000-acre Balmoral estate. Polar bear would be very happy there, but... I actually looked into it. I think the only way to get him there would be via the QE2 and then drive up from London. I would imagine there's not a dog carrier that would easily carry that dog. No. <laughs> but he's got a good life here, so he doesn't know what he's missing in Scotland. Fair enough. As most of us don't know what we're missing in Scotland. Her Majesty knows. That's why she keeps going back. I've never been to Scotland. I've been to the I've been to London and sort of that region, but never Scotland. I would love to go. It's beautiful. Scotland's incredibly beautiful. There are some good artists up there working in quiet not anonymity, but in quiet, period. <laughs> isn't that the isn't Scotland where they just did a uh, artist's salary i think is that is it's either scotland or ireland oh i don't know about that but for instance the woman i share this place with helen dennerly is a sculptor working with scrap metal on a large scale she's done pieces as big as 20 feet tall and they have a condition that most uh, not most i think every public building has to have a public art component and it's not just an afterthought like she works with architects right from the inception of the building and they talk about siting and what they're going to put in sight lines and all of that so she's done quite a lot of public art commissions oh yeah the percent for the arts program is magnificent it's very different than over here. I mean, Helen has been a working artist for over 40 years. She doesn't teach. She doesn't write. She doesn't do lectures. All she does 
is her art. So envious. And she's managed to make a go of it for 40 years. Oh, I, I, I've spent 30 years now working with young and emerging artists, and there are very few of them that I've worked with over that time period who have been able to devote themselves solely to their art. In fact, I think it's just limited to two. Everybody else I've worked with has had a day job. Sadly, that's sort of normal in the arts. But it's always been that way. I mean, I always forget uh, somebody worked in the customs office in London. Somebody else worked in the, the post office. There have been some uh, famous writers who Yeah, had, Bukowski working in the mail office, post office. Yeah, very odd jobs sometimes. I know, but I, I can dream. I, I always dream that like artists can be sort of sustaining their careers on their creativity. Do you consider yourself a <laughs> an artist when you're not doing a podcast? Yeah, well, I'm a professor and an artist and a podcaster. So I do lots of those okay. different little, so, but they're all arts related. So I, I, I right. do have the luxury that even though I do have like, quote unquote, like normal jobs, um, those jobs still revolve around the arts. Right. But I've been a professor and I always say that I only teach when my business is very good or very bad because the paperwork, grading papers, doing exams, just sucks a lot of time and meetings. Yeah. All of that. Yes. It's that's the, the if like I've often said, this is what I said, my belief on the, the academic side of the arts world. I wish that they could come up with like a teacher's teacher and then like an, an administrative teacher. So like a teacher's teacher gets like 80% classroom work and like maybe 20% administrative work meetings, etc. Whereas a, like an, uh, an academic teacher or an administrative teacher gets like 80% administrative work and 20% in the classroom because I love being in the classroom and I hate being in meetings. Yes, absolutely. You know, what was Woody Allen's famous dictum? Those that can't do teach and those that can't teach teach phys ed. Those that are better administrators than teachers actually get bumped up and become chairs of their department because they spend very little time in the classroom, actually. Like my father, he's a priest, and he kept, they kept trying to make him a bishop, and he kept going, I don't want to be a bishop. I want to be a priest. <laughs> and they, nobody ever understood that. Like I got offered like assistant dean positions, and I'm like, I don't want to be an assistant dean. I want to be a teacher. Yeah. I enjoyed teaching a lot. It's funny. Uh, a friend in New York just posted about a young man from the South who came to visit him and he was taking him around to restaurants and the theater. And he was taking the young man to see a production of company. And the young man had no idea who Stephen Sondheim was. And then somehow in passing, they started talking about Barbara Streisand who covered Sondheim's songs in at least one album 
and the young man didn't know who Barbara Streisand was. And he said, you know, oh, the folly of youth. And now I have to teach him all these things. And I said, well, first of all, it's not such a burden to be talking about Sondheim and Streisand. And second of all, while you're at it, make sure that he teaches you something. Because young people have their fingers on the pulse of all sorts of things that those of us who have a little gray in their beard or white on their head don't know. I mean, everybody knows that if you have a problem with your iPhone, you hand it to a 20-year-old. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, yeah. I used to have a young assistant who, whenever we got some piece of equipment, he would throw out the box and throw out the instructions. And I would say, whoa, 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 I need those. And he'd say, if I don't understand it intuitively, we're not using it. And then he would set everything up. but. You know, after years, when he finally left me, I don't think I knew how to use the printer. But I agree with that theory that technology should be easily usable. Oh, absolutely. And that was, I guess, part of the success of the iPhone and the the whole Apple universe that they they made it intuitive, although it wasn't intuitive if you'd been schooled on a PC your whole life, you had to intuit a different set of <laughs> knowledge. But once you learn how to operate in the Apple universe, it does feel kind of intuitive. I was a PC guy for, God, 15, 20 years before I switched over because I got a teaching job and my school gave me an Apple computer. So I, I was like, I guess I just got to change. So I changed. But let's yeah. get to you, though. I want to talk a little bit about you. So, like, you talked about youth and all this stuff. And one of the things that you focus on is contemporary, I'm going to use your words, contemporary, young, and emerging artists. What what does that mean, first of all? Because like, is that a is that an age or is that a, like, young to making art? You know, like, so, like, if somebody's only been making art for 10 years, but they're 40 years old, is that, is that still – that? cover young and emerging? I, I'm going to do something that I do when I'm teaching, which is everything comes at you in the form of a story. So I'm going to tell you a story. I love it. Please. Okay. So I got to meet John Richardson, who actually, if you can see straight behind me, was the biographer of Picasso. And he's dead now. He passed away, I guess, two, three years ago. And they just published his fourth and final volume of Picasso. John knew Picasso. So one day I'm sitting having lunch with John Richardson, and he's talking about having lunch with Picasso. And I thought, that's extraordinary that you actually knew the man, not just in terms of academically understanding his art, but John was in a relationship with the great collector, Douglas Cooper, who collected Picasso and was a patron of Picasso's. And so John was immediately kind of submerged in this milieu 
of working with some of the greatest artists of the 20th century and getting to know them personally. And it's like any relationship. There are things about your friends that are fantastic and things that are annoying and you figure out what you're going to put up with and all of that. But he had this relationship with artists. So I started collecting photography in, I guess, 86 or 87. And I'd been collecting kind of historical work, greatest hits. You know, I think at some point, everybody in their early collecting days, it's written down as a law somewhere. You must buy some work by Henri Cartier-Bresson. So I had Cartier-Bresson's Gare Saint-Lazare, the guy jumping over the puddle. And then I had this lunch with John Richardson, and I'm listening to him talk about having a relationship with Picasso, knowing the man. And I thought, this is much more interesting than collecting work by dead artists, although Cartier-Bresson wasn't dead at that moment, but still. And I just completely switched. I said, I want to start working with young artists. I want to get ahead of the curve. Also, necessity is always the mother of invention. My financial circumstances had changed. And I thought, I'm never going to be able to collect in the way that I have been collecting this kind of great historical material. So I should get ahead of the curve and buy work by young artists when it's cheap. And the saying is, if you can hit 300 over the course of your lifetime in Major League Baseball, you'll make it into the Hall of Fame. So if I was right three out of 10 times, I would have a great collection. And then I started working with these young artists who were just starting out, sometimes 19, 20, 21 years old. And I also encountered artists who were young to making art. They had had other lives, but they didn't really start making art until they were, in some cases, in their 40s or 50s. And they were at the same stage of their career as the young artists were. And so it became about taking on artists right at the beginning of their careers, helping them create a foundation, build a career, and hopefully sticking with them, or hopefully them sticking with you rather than abandoning you. But there are all sorts of things I feel like I should backtrack on, because even that sentence, I kept on thinking about references to that kind of filled out the story. I do generally ask people about sort of how they got started. So, like, I mean, to a certain extent, like, okay. were, were your parents even interested in arts and photography and things like this? Like, so how did you even come to an interest in it? No, they were not collectors, but they were, I guess, interested and supporters of the arts. I grew up in, <laughs> for want of a better word, I grew up in a privileged background in 
Philadelphia. I spent my youth in an extremely large house with many, many rooms, and I was essentially an only child until uh, I was 14 when my brother came along. We have a 13 and a half year age difference, uh, and we're very close, but we're kind of both only children who happen to have a sibling, uh, which I think is like the ideal way to do it. Anyway, when I grew up, my parents went to the Philadelphia Orchestra. They got me a subscription to the orchestra, but it wasn't the same night as theirs. I went on my own. I had a membership at the Philadelphia Art Museum, and I used to walk over there all the time on my own. I went to a prep school outside of Center City, Philadelphia, in the suburbs that happened to be located right next door to the Barnes Museum. And I had access to that collection. As a student, you could go anytime you wanted. Everybody else in the world had to make appointments five months in advance. And I used to go over there all the time during breaks between classes. So I grew up with this background having the arts accessible. And I was going to this prep school, K through 12, and I, from a very early age, would walk myself to the train station, take the train out there, walk from the train station to the school. Philadelphia was a city that you could walk around easily, and I never felt it was an unsafe environment, so I used to go to all these places on my own without thinking about it. And I was very fortunate. I lived right around the corner from Eugene Ormandy, the great conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra. When I was going to school, my route would take me through Rittenhouse Square, past uh, his apartment building, which was located right next to the Curtis Institute for Music. And sometimes I would encounter him in the morning and I'd say, so explain to me, maestro, that Beethoven that you conducted last night. And he looked at me like, who is this little kid questioning about what I was doing with Beethoven? But he started answering my questions. Wait, how, how old were you when you were asking? I was probably eight or eight or 10. (laughs) Nice. And I had a similar experience of, The teachers at uh, Episcopal Academy were called masters. It was based on the English public school system. And one of the masters whose ancestors went back to the Revolutionary War, lived in Philadelphia, took me under wing. And at one point, he took me over to a party to meet Henry McElhaney. Andy Warhol once said that Henry McElhaney was the reason that you went to Philadelphia. Henry McElhaney was a great collector. He had gone to the same prep school I went to, Episcopal. Then he went to Harvard. And then he went over to Europe on the Grand Tour, started collecting, came back, and that was all he ever did for the rest of his life. If I remember correctly, Henry's grandfather invented the gas meter so he never needed to work 
so Henry had this house right on the corner of Rittenhouse Square. And he had a great collection of Degas, Monet, Cezanne. And Anthony Ridgway takes me over to some cocktail party or luncheon there. And I walk in and I said, that's a nice chandelier you have. And he said, yes, it is. It kind of dismissing me. And I said, ours is bigger. And he said, I beg your pardon. And I said, the one in my house is also a Baccarat crystal chandelier, but ours is bigger. And then he looked at me and he said, where do you live? And I told him, and he knew the house quite well. And Henry then took me under wing. And he asked me if I ever went to the art museum where he was the president and chairman of the board. And I said, absolutely. I go there all the time by myself. And he said, that's excellent. You should always continue to do that. And Henry then arranged that I would have a permanent lifetime membership at the Philadelphia Art Museum. And for a long time, I was the only person who ever had a permanent lifetime membership at the Art Museum. Quite a number of years later, I was in Montreal and my car was broken into and some things were taken, including my Philadelphia Museum lifetime membership card. So I had my assistant call up the museum and I said, start with the membership office, but they may not know what you're talking about and just say you want a replacement card. They had no idea. So I said, all right, try the development office. And they had no idea. And I said, all right, call up Anne de Harnacourt's office. And Anne's assistant called back and said, okay, Anne's interested. How did you come to have a lifetime permanent membership at the museum? And I told my assistant, tell her that Henry arranged it. That's all I said not Henry McElhaney, just Henry. And we immediately got word back, okay, your replacement card is on the way. Henry was amazing. He was, his family was originally Irish and he had an estate over in Ireland where he raised racing horses. And his next door neighbor also had an estate where she raised racing horses and they became good friends. And at a certain point, he invited her to Philadelphia to come visit and see his art collection. And at that point, her majesty accepted the invitation and came to Philadelphia. So Henry in preparing for her, his neighbor, the queen's visit decided to buy the house next door. And build through. He didn't change the exterior. You had these two completely different houses on the corner of Rittenhouse Square that were connected inside so that he had more room to entertain. And then he decided that he needed still more room. So he built, bought the house on the other side and again, didn't change the exterior because he thought that would have been too ostentatious. Henry was the sort who had a chauffeur-driven Buick. So 
Andy Warhol was right. Henry was the reason why you went to Philadelphia. And even the Queen came to Philadelphia to see Henry McElhaney. And here was this guy who kind of took me under wing. I was very fortunate. I had these teachers at Episcopal. I had these people in Philadelphia who'd been around forever and knew everybody. And they were the people introducing me to the arts and a cultured society. And it was at Episcopal, my prep school, where I started a teacher there, a French teacher, got me interested in the life of Cardinal Richelieu and 17th century French history. As one does, yeah. Right, at the age of 17. And so when I went to Trinity College undergrad, I went there, first of all, because they had no core curriculum, no academic requirements. This was a vestige of the 60s, and you could take whatever you wanted. And I was very specific with them right from the beginning. I said, I'm not putting up with any of this freshman seminar crap. I'm not taking one. They gave me the chairman of the history department as my academic advisor. And over the next four years, I proceeded to take 32 out of 36 credits in either history or art history. And when I was going for the Rhodes Scholarship, I was at an interview where they said, you know, you're supposed to be a well-rounded individual to qualify for the Rhodes Scholarship. And yet we see this insane concentration in either history or art history. How do you explain that? And I said, well, you, you can't study the 17th century without studying the history of music, the history of science, the history of mathematics, the history of literature. You get into all of these things as a, you know, the history is just the portal. And I spent a year living in Paris doing research. Again, I went into a program that had no courses per se, no classes. I just studied exactly what I wanted to. And I was able to get access to the Bibliothèque du Sénat, which is not open to the public, and met some professors there who were exactly in my field. And I just was always very self-directed, driven, and interested in pursuing what I wanted to pursue. I wasn't going to faff about with subjects that didn't interest me. I think the last mathematics course I took was probably junior year of prep school. <laughs> the last science course I took was probably sophomore year of prep school. I, I was very fortunate to be able to do that. And it's funny, right now, I'm, as I said at the onset, in this kind of odd location in Colorado. And I'm actually thinking of 
either giving some lectures at a local college or maybe even going over to the local high school, except that my message to students has always kind of been, you should pursue what you're really passionate about. <laughs> That's not what administrators who are working off of curriculums want their students to hear. No, and many of them are funded by like government subsidized whatever, so they have to teach to a test or they have to meet a certain curriculum and all this kind of stuff. And it's it's a very difficult thing because I feel like to a certain extent these days we are pumping out generalists more than specialists. Yeah, but they're not generalists who seem to know a lot in general. Yeah, the, well, when I say the word generalist, I mean like they just have like a little bit of knowledge about a lot of things, but they're not actually sort of masters of anything. Right. Whereas I've been very fortunate over the years to meet all manner of people, people who are my clients, people who I know in the arts in general, visual arts and performing arts. And you know, how often do you expect to s sit down with Bruce Springsteen or Bono or David Bowie or, or a John Richardson or whomever and have them tell you that they were an A student in high school? The answer is that's totally unimportant. What was important was that they wanted to pick up a guitar or they wanted to hang out with interesting people or they wanted to write their own stories or whatever. Agreed. The, the people who are end up doing interesting things are the people who were lucky enough at some point in their lives, often early on to identify something that they were passionate about and to pursue that. I mean, I've met Elton John on numerous occasions. This is a kid who liked to noodle on the piano. And he's essentially been noodling on the piano for the rest of his life. But he's really, really good at it. He found his niche in life. And I don't even know if Elton ever went to university. I have no idea. I mean, then again, you meet somebody like Mick Jagger, who actually was a very good student at university. But, you know, he's the rarity in the art world. And even, you know, if you meet somebody like Bill Clinton, who's a very smart guy and a Rhodes Scholar, Bill Clinton was clearly interested in politics as an avenue to achieving something from a very early age. I mean, he was driven. So he goes to through high school and goes to college in order to achieve what he wants in politics. But, you know, if I encountered a kid in high school here, I would say, what are you interested in? You tell me what you're interested in. Well, sadly, culture these days assumes that 
kids don't know what they're interested in and they, they treat them sort of like as well as kids, they, they, they don't respect their interests. Whereas there are lots of kids who like find an interest. I mean, fuck if, if we dissuaded children, we wouldn't have Microsoft and Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and all these other people who, as a kid, they found an interest and followed their interest. So like, it's unfortunate that the sort of the hierarchy and the structure of the system is sort of encouraging people not to follow their passions as much as it as it should. And we started out by talking about how if you're in a position of educating somebody young, you're aware of all the things they don't know, but you should remember to stop and ask them to teach you something because Young people do know all sorts of interesting things. And if you ask them what they're interested in, you may end up learning. My favorite time when I was teaching, I I used to teach this 9 a.m. class uh, on the history of contemporary photography. And teaching an artist at 9 a.m. is akin to, (laughs) yeah, asking him to submit to extreme torture. I don't know why they signed up for it, but I would have 25 students there. Probably because it was a mandatory course. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Anyway, (laughs) I never took attendance until 9.30. That's very kind of you. (laughs) Well, (laughs) smart. Otherwise, my whole class would have been absent. So... For 30 minutes, what we would do is I would say, okay, here's what I did on the weekend. I went to see this movie. I was reading this book. What did you do over the weekend? What magazines are you looking at? What advertisements in the subway caught your eye? What movies are you streaming? What are you listening to? Tell me why you think this is interesting. And Eventually, word got out that the first 30 minutes of class were probably the most fun. Otherwise, I'm just lecturing to you about Cartier-Bresson or Maplethorpe or whomever. But the interactive part was really the first 30 minutes where they would tell me what they had done over the weekend. And I learned all sorts of interesting stuff from them that way. I mean... I'm fascinated. If you want to know what's going on in cutting-edge contemporary music, probably the best single person to ask, in my experience, is Elton John. Because although he's over 70 now, he is still very interested in younger artists making music. And he seeks them out. You know, the number of times Elton John has recommended some young artist who may or may not go on to have a great career, but he's got his finger on the pulse because he's talking to other young artists. All right. I think you answered that question really well. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing that I was interested in when I was reading about you was you chose to be a private art dealer and not a gallerist or have like a brick and mortar location, things like this. Like why, what was the sort of thought behind being an, a, a private art dealer instead of being sort of the, the traditional gallery model? 
Well, first of all, it was economics. It's cheaper to operate as a private art dealer. <laughs> the Maintaining the overhead of a gallery is expensive. And so this was a way to get kind of into the art world within my means. I'm going to backtrack again. So <laughs> after Trinity College, I, uh, I didn't get the Rhodes Scholarship. And so I decided to go on and get a PhD. I skipped the master's and I enrolled at, uh, well, I applied to PhD programs at Princeton, Johns Hopkins, and Brown. And I chose Brown uh, because they had an ice hockey program. And I had played and coached ice hockey, and they offered me the job as the goalie coach. I was going to ask you, because your portrait that's on your website, I'm like, this guy has played some sports. Like, <laughs> the, you got some broad shoulders. Like, you got, like, that sports. I was going to say rugby or football was my thing. I was an ice hockey goalie. And uh, it believe it or not, technically, I turned pro at 17. I went up to Canada. I did not play in the NHL, but I got paid to play ice hockey and then i came when it was clear i wasn't going to make it up there i came back finished prep school and went to college so people said you know like how did you go from hockey into the arts and i said well i wasn't a dumb jock but i carried this ice hockey over to brown where i was the goalie coach and i was doing my doctoral studies I was interested in the work I was doing. I actually was fortunate enough to be able to go take courses and do work through the neighboring institution, RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, which unbeknownst to me had a great photography department, but I had nothing to do with that. I actually went and worked over at the museum for a brief period with their 17th century Dutch painting collection. And I was very fortunate that the director of the museum at the time was a guy named Frank Robinson, who was an expert on 17th century Dutch prints and drawings. And he gave me insight into all sorts of kind of the, the ways that you learn to look at art. And he subsequently went on and was the head of the Johnson Museum at Cornell and then just relatively recently retired. So here I was doing these studies, but I also found I wasn't interested in kind of the academic infighting that's involved in being a doctoral candidate. I was taken under wing by a very distinguished professor, but we just totally disagreed uh, philosophically in, in our approach to what we were doing. And I ended up working with him doing computer studies on illegitimate children born to prostitutes in the city of Amiens in like the turn of the 19th century uh, and 19th to 20th century. And that was not what I was interested in doing. 
but as one does in academia, though, the most obscure little specific niche thing. Absolutely. And it was clear that if I helped this guy with his research and kind of worked with him, that he would then move me on in an academic position as kind of his doctoral candidate. But I was much more interested in the work I was doing over at the RISD Museum, where I was not an enrolled student. <laughs> Slightly problematic. Anyway, there I was kind of at a crossroads and trying to decide whether to pursue the doctorate. And my father was pushing me to join the family business. And I turned him down once, and then he <laughs> raised his offer. And uh, what's the line from The Godfather? He made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And so I left. And for 10 years, I worked in the international commodity trading business. I'm going to nod and, and act like I know what that means, but I don't. At one point, I was president of the business. We were one of the largest private companies in the United States. We did business all over the world. I can tell you, a, you can edit this out or whatever, but I'll, I'll tell you a very interesting story that has to do with Prague. Okay. I mean, I don't even know what a commodity is to be specific. Okay. So treat me like I'm an idiot. We specialized in everything related to cattle. And we were trading beef, cattle, raw hides, finished leather products all over the world. We did business in the Soviet Union, the Eastern Bloc, Western Europe, South America, the United States, and Asia. I was in charge of our Asian business. But as with all of my stories, I'm going to go backwards. And I'm going to take you to, uh, let's see. I, was, I do want to get to your art career at some point, but go we on. Will. <laughs> Nine, I was born in 1958, so 1960. I was 10 years old. I was out here at our house in Vail, and we had a telex machine in the house, as everyone does when they're growing up. And my job was to read the telex if it went off in the middle of the night because it was down by my room and if it seemed like it was interesting or important i would go upstairs and wake my father and tell him there was a telex he had to pay attention to otherwise i would go back to sleep i would let him sleep and he would deal with it in the morning so in the middle of the night a telex comes through in 1968 that says that all of our contracts in Czechoslovakia have been guaranteed with letters of credit opened from the Bank Narodny in Moscow to London. And as a 10-year-old, of course, I looked at this and thought, this is a little unusual. Why would a Russian bank be paying for the Czech contracts? And so I woke my father, and he proceeded to deal with it. And this is before there's CNN, before there's the internet, and 
what we had there was evidence that the Russians, before they invaded Czechoslovakia, knew all of the contracts that they wanted to make sure were delivered during the invasion. And they had guaranteed them with a letter of credit because the next day the tanks came in and for a period there, nobody knew what the hell was going on in Czechoslovakia, except for people who had managed to escape across the borders. And as somebody living in Prague, I'm sure you weren't there then, but that's a moment that still has a great deal of resonance and importance in the Czech Republic. Yes, the day the tanks came in and the day the tanks left. Yeah. And as a kid being exposed to this family business, we were kind of witness to history on so many levels. I can tell so many stories like this, but I did this for 10 years. And that's when I started collecting. I went to the Whitney Biennial and I saw a wall, floor to ceiling of Bruce Weber's portraits. And I thought, these are terrific. Love Bruce Weber. Huge fan. I had been looking at photography, going to exhibitions, looking at books. Interestingly, there was a new magazine that started in the 80s called or restarted. It was called Vanity Fair. And Vanity Fair used a lot of interesting photographers. Annie Leibovitz, Bruce Weber, Herb Ritz, Dick Avedon, Irving Penn. They were all in the pages. And they were also writing about photographers. Vanity Fair did a profile of Maplethorpe early on. They did a profile of Joel Peter Whitkin early on. Another great love of mine, yes. I was getting kind of an education in photography by osmosis. And I had this background in 17th century art, but those Rembrandts tend to be expensive and most of them are in museums. So they do tend to be, yes. <laughs> so I couldn't collect them. And here was this medium that was still relatively affordable. And so I started collecting. And then at a certain point, I started thinking that what I was doing in photography was more interesting than what I was doing in the commodity trading business. And let's see. Andy died in 87. Robert died in 89. Warhol and Maplethorpe. In 88, I was asked to curate an exhibition at a small museum in Philadelphia. And my first reaction was, oh, I've got this budding collection. Maybe do something with that. And then I thought, no, it's way too early on in my collecting. And I recognized having some background in art history that I needed to let my collection grow and develop and kind of mature. But I was definitely interested in doing something with photography. And so 
I curated an exhibition that had work by Dwayne Michaels, Tina Barney. Uh, gosh, I'm looking for the catalog. Greg Gorman. Um, All the greats of that era. Well, here it is. You still have the catalog. That's magnificent. Absolutely. David Bailey, Tina Barney, Nancy Burson, Ellen Carey, Eileen Cowan, Greg Gorman, David Hiscock, a British artist, Marcus Leatherdale, David Lieb, Dwayne Michaels, Deborah Turbeville, Neil Winokur. It's kind of a checklist of the 80s. Yes, and many of my idols. (laughs) Okay, so I... (laughs) managed to kind of pull together an interesting exhibition on portraiture, which has always been my interest, whether it was 17th century or photography, I've always been interested in figurative work. I like looking at people. So I did this exhibition and at a certain point I said, I'm going to make some changes in my life and I'm going to moved to New York and I left the business and I didn't have a job. I decided I was going to put myself out there as a freelance writer and independent curator, which is a surefire road to disaster. At that time, I mean, these days that's pretty common now, but at that time that was incredibly progressive. But I figured I knew how to write. And I like looking at pictures. So that was what I could do. And uh, again, when you're talking to students or younger people, I'd say a lot of times if you just kind of hang out a shingle and say, this is what I do, people will take you at your word. (laughs) You can fool them. If you show up at my door with a guitar over your shoulder and say, I'm a musician, I'll believe you. So uh, that's I was doing a version of that. And that was that period where I didn't really have any money. And I thought I'm not going to be able to collect the same way that I had been collecting when I was in the commodity trading business. The funny thing is that if you look at my collection now, All of what you and I would consider to be the really good pieces were all acquired after I left the commodity trading business. Your listeners on the podcast won't be able to see as I swivel the camera, but that's an Andy Warhol in the corner. (laughs) One of Andy Warhol's stitched photographs. And there's a story that goes with it. I saw it in Los Angeles. I asked, I fell in love with it. I asked about it. I was told it was sold and the price was way above what I could afford. And I said, well, if for some reason the deal falls through, let me know. And cause I'm seriously interested. And they basically said, you know, kind of like, don't bother your pretty little blonde head. And I gave up on it. Five years later, I was walking through 
the Robert Miller Gallery in New York in the back rooms, and I saw the piece on the floor. And I said, what's that doing here? And Howard Reed, who was working there at the time, subsequently opened up his own gallery, said, it's been here forever. <laughs> and I said, really? I'll take it. And then I went home and realized that I had yet again bought a piece that I didn't have the money for. Uh, I don't recommend doing this, but I've done it on numerous occasions. So I called up Howard and I said, would you be willing to accept some other art in trade for the Warhol? And I made some suggestions and he said, I understand what you're trying to do and I appreciate it. He said, I don't want to have to sell four pictures to sell one. And I said, that's fair. He said, I'll give you time to sell the three pieces so that you can buy the Warhol. So I called up three dealers in the art world who I knew very well. And I said, I have Henri Cartier-Bresson's Garcin Lazar. I have Robert Duano's Hotel de Vie, The Kiss. Uh. And I have a vintage Ruth Orkin print of an American girl in Italy. And you sold all of those? You sound like my mother. You're, you're beating me to the punchline. So, yes, I said, here's the deal. I'm trying to buy a Warhol. You have to come up. If you're interested, come up, see them. And if the print is acceptable, you bring a check and cut the check right then and there. And here's my price. And I named very advantageous prices for them so that they could acquire eminently saleable inventory. And all three dealers took me up on it. And normally, I never told anybody in my family about my art dealings. They didn't really understand what I was doing, certainly not in those days. And Yet I was so excited that I called my mother and I told her. And she said, you sold the Cartier-Bresson? And I said, yes. She said, Cartier-Bresson is one of the great photographers, all those exhibitions, all those books. And I said, yeah, but mom, Andy Warhol is arguably one of the two most important artists of the 20th century. And there was this pause. And then she said, you think? And I said, yes, I do. And to this day, I always maintain if there was a fire, I would grab the cats and the Warhol. Now I know better. There was a fire in my building in New York at one point. And fortunately, it didn't come up to our floor, but it was down in the basement. There were flames coming out of the window and the Fire department pounded on the door and said, you've got to get out of here right now. And I left the cats. I left the Warhol. I'm standing outside looking in. The cats are in the window looking at me like, yeah, a lot of talk you are. And I realized not only should I have grabbed the cats and the Warhol, I also should have grabbed my computer, which had my whole life on it. But uh, I've learned the lesson now. 
Well, now, but you, so you're talking about your collection, and I'm also fascinated because, as a collector. I love talking to collectors because, as a professor or, or as an artist, I'm very interested in how they think about what they're purchasing, why they collect certain ways, and things like this. So, like the the thing that I keep coming to is is like collectors. You know, some collectors, of course, do it for the money and the investment and all that. I don't like those people that much. They're not that interesting to me because that's more, you know, just uh, huckster sort of just shuffling money around, maybe even a tax loop. Actually, or what it is, is commodity trading. I was going to say it's a commodity trading, but I was, yeah, that's too obvious. That's what it is. I know it's sad, but it's true. I mean, once a piece of art is in the market, it is basically a commodity that is just traded. That's it. But I feel like some artists, some collectors, and from the way you're talking, it sounds like you're one of these people is that like, I guess the question is like, how do you choose which pieces to collect? So like, is it a connection to it? Is it the, the value of it on the market? Is it some story like you talked about, like behind the works or is it their CV or the hopes or like, or a connection? Like what's the, what's that, that thing for you? I always say that I only collect and I only sell art that I like personally. If I'm looking at an artist's portfolio, my kind of overriding question is, are there 10 pieces here that I want to own for myself? Because if there aren't, you can be good, but you're not for me. And I'm not the right guy to represent you. So they need at least 10 magnificent works, like impactful works. Well, there's got to be something there, yeah, that makes you want to get involved with them. And then, yeah, to go back to the original story, um, you know, having a relationship with an artist. I've been doing this for 30 years now, so I like to think I've done a good job of weeding out the assholes. But the people that I meet, if you meet somebody that seems interesting and they're getting their career started, yeah, sometimes I find a piece that I like and I buy it because I also want to support them. There, there is this relationship of supporting an artist. So I don't know whether I'm going to make it to the Hall of Fame. I don't know whether I'm batting 300. I mean, I've got the Warhol. Here's a Frank Horvat. There's a perfect case of somebody who I got to know really well and ended up having a many-year relationship with him, a friendship. I've got a Joel Peter Witkin in the library. Uh, I've got a Richard Misrak. There's a David Leventhal down the hallway. There are a, a whole bunch of Ryan McGinley's and Christopher Bucklow's. I, I have this killer wall in this house that's uh, 25 feet high and has 35 pieces on it. And I've got Victor Skrebneski, Helmut Newton, Dick Avedon, Walker Evans, Dorothea Lang, Horace Bristol, Greg Gorman, Frank Horvat, vintage George Platt lines, Mary Alpern, vintage uh, Ruth Orkin of uh, Montgomery Clift, a, a Herman Leonard portrait of a young Chet Baker. Oh, 
I have horrible collection envy right now. <laughs> and they're all hung in that salon style that I saw the very first time I went to the, the Whitney Biennial and saw those Bruce Webbers all hung from floor to ceiling. And I just love walking past that wall, walking up the stairs and seeing different pieces or seeing them anew. I mean, the private dealing, to go back to that question, the artist kind of dragged me in to the dealing. I was making a meager living as a writer and curator, but I had some interesting benchmarks along the way. I curated a, a show early on down in Atlanta that had work by Nick Woplington, Tina Barney, Bill Jacobson, and one other artist. Uh, but, I mean, there was good work in that show. Anyway, Frank Horvat, perfect example. I saw a postcard somewhere of a picture that he took in London in 1960. And in the 1980s, Frank was probably known in France where he was living, but not so well known in the United States. And I asked around and nobody knew how to get this picture. And I went over to London and asked around and nobody knew how to get the picture. And then I was going to Paris and I saw an article on a Frank Horvat exhibition. So I contacted the gallery and I said, I'm looking for this very specific picture. And they put me in touch with Frank and I bought the picture and I talked to him for quite a while about it. I said, this picture is a complete mystery to me. And I've spent so much time looking at it and traveling through it and trying to figure it out. What's your take on it? And he said, those questions you ask, I don't know the answers to. But that's kind of why I took the picture, because it seemed like an interesting moment. And to this day, I have in my desk the original postcard that I used to track down Frank Horvat, and I have the picture itself right next to my desk. And I knew him over the next, like, 30 years. And there was a period when I tried to represent his work. I didn't do a very good job of it. I wasn't, I guess I wasn't the right guy, but we maintained our friendship all along. And he only died, uh, I think, two years ago during the pandemic. He was quite old. But some of the times that we shared were, uh, I remember he did a book on trees. And I wasn't interested in trees. But I would talk to him and say, why are you interested in trees? And he would explain to me. And I'd say, yeah, all right, okay. Yeah. But one day, we're at dinner, very late, in Paris, in some nondescript brasserie. And we come out of the restaurant. And you know how in Paris you'll encounter in no place special, this beautiful kind of like inner courtyard or square. 
And there in the middle of the square is a tree. And the French, of course, light everything beautifully. So it's got this beautiful uplighting. And Frank stopped and he said, look at that. And I stopped next to him and agreed that it was beautiful. It was impressive. And I said, do you want to take a picture? Because Frank, being a true disciple of Henri Cartier-Bresson, always carried his Leica with him. And Frank said, no, I feel like I've said everything I need to say about trees. And to me, that was, this is not a story about a tree. It's about a story about how an artist looks and how your curiosity drives you to look at something that maybe nobody else is looking at. And at a certain point, you can actually say everything that you want to say about that subject, and you don't need to go back to it anymore. And like that all came out of this friendship with Frank Horvat. I remember another time he told me when he started out, he had one of these viewfinder cameras that you hold down and you look down through. Love those cameras, yes. Well, except Cartier-Bresson told Frank, he said, stop using that. He said, you look with your eyes, not with your gut. And so Frank shifted and became, you know, a magnum photographer, or for a while he was. But, you know, I felt like I was the recipient of this kind of oral history of the medium because Frank was telling me a story about Cartier-Bresson. So the dealing was kind of, I was like a crack addict. Dealing was a way to fund my habit of collecting. And Christopher Bucklow, British artist, I used to go over, he worked at the Victorian Albert Museum. He was like an assistant, a junior curator there. And whenever I went to London, I would stop by and have tea with Mark Hayworth Booth, who was the curator there for a long time. No agenda, just to sit down and talk to him, see what he was working on and interested in. So I go over to London. Christopher Bucklow greets me. I've never met him before. And he said, I just read an article you wrote on Adam Foos. Now, Foos is somebody that I collected very early on and followed his career. And I wrote this article and uh, for a French publication, actually. And uh, apparently Adam liked it and Chris did as well. And he said, I'd like to show you my work. A lot of similarities there. Oh, absolutely. Well, they're very good friends. They call Chris Bucklow, Adam Foos, Susan Durgis, and Gary Fabian Miller at one point called themselves the Gang of Four. <laughs> anyway, Chris showed me his work. I was initially thinking, cheeky bastard. You know, who are you to say, let me open up this box. And then when he did, I, I fell in love with the work and I did something that I rarely do as a collector. I said, that's great. I'll take it. 
normally I like to think about things for a bit and I, I like to let things germinate. I feel like if you wake up in the morning and you're still thinking about a picture you saw yesterday, then that's the start of a relationship with that picture. But if you've put it out of mind, no. But Chris had done this work that I thought was extraordinary. And so I bought it and brought it back to New York. And I was doing a presentation and somebody said, what have you seen recently that interested you? And I had this tube with a 30 by 40 Cibachrome print in it. And I opened up the tube and kind of snapped out this print, unrolled it like now for my next trick. And I started talking about this photograph and that led to me representing Chris because people started coming to me and saying like, I'd like to do a show of that work. Can you make it happen? So all of the dealing kind of just, it wasn't some grand plan. I, I didn't have it mapped out. It just, it, all the changes happened organically. And at a certain point, I did have a gallery space. And I also discovered that I didn't really like doing that because. The routine of a gallerist is that you, you decide you're going to do an exhibition with an artist, a living artist, and you spend a month or two or more talking to them in great detail about what you're going to show, how you're going to present it, what you're going to say about the work, who you're going to target, uh, who you want to show it to specifically. You do all of this kind of strategizing about how to present their work and give it its moment. And then you do the show and you have an opening and you take the artist and some friends out to dinner. And then they come in the next day and they say, so what's happening? And you say, you remember last month, everything that we were doing about your show? Well, Actually, that's what I'm working on now for the next show with the next artist. That cycle is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, of course, you you have the show in front of you. You're working on the next show. But I always felt like I couldn't focus on the show in front of me because I was focusing on the next show. Well, I find that that gallery cycle of like of doing that kind of stuff to be uh, sort of detrimental in many ways, because like the idea of being a private art dealer, you get to focus on relationships, the, like building either collector relationships, curator relationships, uh, artist relationships. And really, that's a lot of what we all get into this industry for, not the show poniness of like the you know, putting on an exhibition and then the stress and the financial burden of having to have a brick and mortar place and then having to plan two years in advance and three years in advance of exhibitions. I mean, the amount of time, effort and paperwork and administrative stuff just to pull those kinds of things off sort of takes a lot of, of your time and your, your emotional effort away from 
the relationships that we all want to build with these people. Absolutely. And so having had a gallery for a brief period, I pulled back from that and went back to private dealing and then eventually evolved into a format where I would do only two exhibitions a year. I found a friend who had a gallery who was not in a competing field. And I said, like, I will take your gallery for two months of the year and we'll work it out at a time that's mutually convenient. And I'll do two shows and I'll focus on them, but I won't have to worry about the next show coming up tomorrow. And it let me spend a lot more time with the artists and the collectors. I still have this debate in my own mind. I feel like doing an exhibition these days is the most expensive way to reach the fewest number of people. <laughs> it's very true. What I find fascinating is that the thing that's kind of keeping this cycle in play more than anything is the artists themselves. They still talk about wanting to have an exhibition. And a lot of times I'd say like, well, you know, for what I'm going to spend on introducing your work to a group of collectors who've never heard of you before, we could go out and now we could make a publication and we could send it all over the world. And there's no longer that stigma of self-publishing being a vanity project. Everybody is self-publishing. Everybody's doing all sorts of really well-designed, interesting publications that aren't necessarily distributed by Abrams or Random House. Or DAP. Yeah. Well, you can actually take your self-published catalog to DAP. They will take it on and distribute. I mean, if you're a gallery that's been operating for 30 years, you've got the, the chops to call up DAP and say, hey, we've got some new catalogs. You want to take them on? You won't make money doing it, but if you want to get the work out there, Maybe that's a more effective way than doing an exhibition. Yeah, a lot of artists get into, like, if you do an exhibition, the only people that are really going to see it are people that live in that region. And so, like, there's a limited scope of people that will ever truly see the exhibition. Whereas if you create a publication, like you said, it, it literally can be sent out anywhere in the world. And it's a much broader capability to really get more exposure for your work. And publications have legs. I mean, as we talk, you are looking behind me at <laughs> bookshelves. <laughs> I have a library of over 4,000 volumes devoted to photography and art history. And, you know, some of those I've had for 30 years or longer. So, you know, the publications stay with you. The artists still want to have a show. And you understand it because you go out, you might spend five years of your life creating a body of work 
you go through all of those pictures. Now that people shoot digitally, there's a lot more material to go through. It's more cost affordable to do that, but still, there's a lot of work to edit. You create an edit, then you bring it to me. Together, we go through and create a new edit and a better, you know, of course, uh, that goes without saying. And then, uh, artists are the worst at editing their own work. We, I I admit, some are and some aren't. That's what's really interesting. I have an artist I've worked with for a long time now, and he'll show me 2,000 pictures and say, you pick them. And I have another artist who I work with who will go out, work on a project, take the pictures, do an edit, and he shows me 18 pictures and says, pick 16. That's it. And you know what? He is his own best editor, but he is a rarity. Uh, you're right. Most artists are their own worst editors. Absolutely. Because they get sometimes too close to a picture. I mean, sometimes you look at a picture as an artist and you just know. Andy Flatabo, uh, my artist who only shows me 18 pictures and says pick 16, he will tell me, he says, this is my silver picture, this is my gold picture, and this is my platinum picture. And he's usually right, but a lot of artists are not. And I've done innumerable portfolio reviews where somebody says, let me show you a really good picture. and. I've done a lot of portfolio reviews with a fellow named Bill Hunt, who you may know of. And Bill used to say, kind of, you be quiet, let me look through them, and I'll tell you which one is your really good picture. Yeah, portfolio reviews are are an interesting industry in and of itself. And I'm always fat because I do online portfolio reviews anonymously for lens culture. Uh, so ah. I, I do sort of like a volume of, of them, not necessarily as high quality or, or anything like that, that you're doing. I, I know the ones you do. So, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated with the whole portfolio review technique because every person who participates sort of does it in a different way. Like what are some of the like things that you've noticed? Like, so you're talking about like sequencing and sort of all this kind of stuff. Like, well, what are some of the mistakes that people make other than talking too much? The golden rule has got to be leave them wanting more. If you show me a portfolio with 40 pictures and 20 of them are really good, I will still think, huh, does he know how to take 20 good pictures or great pictures? Or did he kind of, is he hit and miss? On the other hand, if you only show me the 20 really good pictures, I'm going to go, holy shit. This guy is good. I want to see more. 
I've often told both my students and even people I do portfolio reviews for is like, in, in to a certain extent, less is more. Like they really only show the public your absolute best, not your second best, just to fill out some space or fill out a you know an amount that you feel should be in a portfolio. Like just put your absolute best because your entire career, your reputation, your the quality of the portfolio is going to be based off of the worst image in it. Absolutely. That's very good advice because if you end up in front of me online or across a desk or, or uh, come to see me with a portfolio of work and you only show me eight pictures, but they're eight really good pictures, then I want to continue the conversation. Then I want to find out a little bit more about you. I want to try and discern whether you're an asshole or somebody worth working with. Uh, you know, we're going to keep the conversation going. If you show me a huge portfolio box with 60 pictures in it and they're all over the place, it's kind of like, yeah, okay. And remember, I said I use that kind of barometer, do I wake up the next morning thinking about the a picture? Well, if you show me 40 or 60 pictures and they're all over the place and a lot of them are not that good, what are the chances that I'm going to remember the one that was really great? You've diluted your message. So keep it concentrated and Leave me wanting more. Okay. Well, speaking of that, now I have, yeah. I have, a, I have a pet peeve about this, but I'm not going to tell you my pet peeve about it. But what do you think about text, context for work? So whether it's the title of the series, the title, titles for images, uh, artist statements, all these kinds of things. How do you feel that plays a role? Is it important? Is it not important? What's your opinion I have a strong opinion about it, and it, it, I come from the Bill Hunt school. Shut up and let me look at the pictures. <laughs> I don't uh, – I, I tell a story. I was one time working with uh, Carol Squires. We were both editors at American Photo Magazine, and uh, we were going around to a gallery together, and we went in, and it was five minutes before closing, and they said, we're about to close soon. And Carol said, that's okay. We're professionals. We know how to look. So <laughs> I've looked at a lot of pictures now over the years. Shut up and let me look at them. If I have questions that the pictures themselves don't answer, then I will ask them. <laughs> but just let me try and figure it out for myself what the pictures are about what your interest is, what you're trying to communicate to me. Because this is, if you're a photographer, your chosen medium of communication. If you thought that you were able to communicate better through song, you would pick up a guitar or start noodling at the piano. If you thought you were better at expressing what you had inside of you, through writing, you would have a pencil or a computer in front of you. But you have chosen to pick up a camera and to use the photographic medium to try and communicate 
something to me that is important to you. So let me see if you've done an effective job of communicating that. And sometimes I need context and background. I'll have a vague understanding of what I'm looking at, but I'll say, okay, I need some more specifics here. But other times, it all comes through. I've done innumerable portfolio reviews where I've said, uh uh, don't show me the artist statement. Don't say anything. Just sit there. I'm going to look at your pictures now. And then it comes through so clear. The pictures resonate so distinctly that I will start to tell them, you know, it seems to me you did this, you know, this is pictures of your dying grandmother. These are pictures that you took in uh, India when you went there. These are pictures of your friends in high school that you have a real connection to. Whatever the story is that you're trying to tell me, it's all there in the pictures. And I love that. Now, to go back to the Frank Horvath story, sometimes the picture doesn't answer all the questions, but it leads you on a journey that you decide you want to take. You come out of it saying, my God, these are amazing. I can't figure it all out, but like I have this imaginary narrative of what goes before and what comes after. Am I on the right path or you know, does it even matter? No. And so generally, like when I'm selling work, we ask the artist for an artist statement. And then usually we have to edit it into like normal English because they think they're writing for art forum. <laughs> it, it's sad, but true. <laughs> Nobody reads art forum. You, you subscribe to art forum so you can look at the pictures. Agreed. So stop writing that way. But yes, we use an art statement to, to tell collectors something about the work because we're trying to get them to come in and, and look at it. They haven't, had the opportunity to look at 20 pictures yet so we need to hook them to get in to look at the 20 pictures but then you know when a collector comes in the gallery usually i stand there and shut up i, I let them go through the pictures and look at them and then they'll turn to me if they have questions and say explain to me what the hell's going on here well, and that's one of my other questions, because again, you're a dealer, so you're also selling work. So not you, you collect for yourself, but you also sell work. So like, what's the, 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 I don't even know, like the hierarchy. Like, so is it, do people often collect because they engage with the work? Is that the primary for like first line of choice when they do it? Or are they trying to connect with the story of it? So like the statement or the, the idea of the whole series kind of thing, or like, I guess the question is sort of like, how do these collectors choose which one or who, or even what artist to be collecting from? Like, what's the thing that engages them on the average? I know it's all specific and personal. 
take a step back, there's a question that precedes that, which is kind of how do they end up there in the first place? Yeah, how do you even get their attention? Well, so I've been doing this for 30 years now, but even early on, I made it clear that I was only buying or selling work that interested me. And so I would have a relationship. You know, I said I would go to the Victoria and Albert Museum and I would sit down and have tea with Mark Hayworth Booth with no agenda. But we got to know each other and we got to understand each other's eyes and interests. And so at a certain point, I might call up Mark Hayworth Booth and say, hey, there's something I'm working with now that I think would interest you. Or I would call up Ann Tucker at the Houston Museum and say, you know, that I've seen a young artist that I think you should take a look at. And so because I was working with artists who had generally never had a single show before or were just starting out, people were coming to the work because of me to start with. They knew my eye and my interests. And then they would look at it and they might say, okay, what's going on here? Why are you interested in this? And I would never say, you know, this is an artist who I think is going places or he's, she's got her finger on the pulse of this. She's the chronicler of Black Lives Matter. And you need to be paying attention to her for that reason. That's not why I'm suggesting somebody. And you can't guarantee that anyways. Yeah. I mean, artists don't always stay with me. Sometimes they go on to bigger and better things. Sometimes they fall off the map. Uh, But, you know, they will do what they will do. Life intervenes. They meet the love of their life, get married, have kids, and decide taking pictures is not that important anymore. Or they better get really successful at taking pictures because they have to support a family. All sorts of things happen. But there I am kind of recommending artists who nobody's ever heard of. And I I try and either get them into the gallery or get their attention. Because I generally know my clients, kind of even before they become clients, I have an idea of what their interests are. And so I don't try and get everybody into every exhibition or show all the work that I'm representing to every collector. I'm really targeting. I have an aphorism that all my friends become clients and all my clients become friends. It's all based on these personal relationships. And I've got the relationship with the artist. And I'll say, like, here's somebody that I think you should pay attention to. I really like the work. Here's why I like it. And I think it's going to intrigue you. I've dealt with Elton John for a long time, many years. and. I remember I was in the Tate Modern looking at a collection uh, or an exhibition taken from his collection, not of any of the work that I ever dealt with with him. It was all historical material. But I had 
been in the auction rooms when a lot of those pieces were bought. And it was kind of like, aha, Elton was buying that. Here it is again. Wow. Amazing man rays and coppets and all sorts of great historical material. But in a side room, they had a uh, video of Elton talking about his collection, much as uh, I would talk about my collection. And he started talking about this kind of subset collection that he had developed and why. And I'm sitting there watching this video and thinking, I know a piece he doesn't have and that he absolutely should. And I contacted his curator and I said, I've just come back from London. I saw this video. Elton should have this piece. And she was like, you're absolutely right. I don't know how we didn't know about it. And I said, well, they're kind of, they're all sold out, but I know where they are. But it was targeted very specifically to like, listening to him talk about his collection and realizing there was something that would be perfect for it. Elton John's collection is one of my like life goals to get a piece into that collection. <laughs> in some ways it's very difficult and in other ways it's not because he's, he's got curators and a staff and it's a big collection now and a arguably one of the most important private collections in the world, I would say maybe one of the two most important private collections in the world. And yet Elton only buys what he likes. I'm so fascinated. What's the other one? Somebody who he knows quite well, Michael Wilson, the producer of the Bond films, who has been collecting primarily 19th century work it's because what's so interesting is that they almost dovetail and the two of them have i know been in the room together on some occasions if they ever end up giving both of their collections to the same institution in the uk you will have the greatest collection of photography wherever they give them. I don't know if that'll ever happen, though. Maybe it'll be pieces of one or the other. I think the Getty would like to have a lot of Michael Wilson's collection. I think the Tate Modern would like to have a lot of Elton's collection. And maybe there's a new museum that they'll create that'll get big chunks. I don't know how it'll all play out. Well, speaking of that, like, what about you? I mean, you have a, I, I don't even know how many pieces you have in your collection, but I assume you have a pretty vast collection. Well, interestingly, I just flew my assistant in uh, a week or so ago, and we went through every single piece and inventoried it because unfortunately some things got lost in the move from New York to here. And there were a couple pieces I was looking for immediately that I knew weren't here. And then I had to go through every single one and compare against the master inventory 
to find out if there was anything else. But having said that, there are about 4,000 photographs. And there are almost an equal number of books. And I've had conversations with different museums that were interested in the collection and different institutions, universities. Right now, interest, my focus is actually on the library. Not that I'm planning on planning on dying. Uh, no, but, but you're not you're not a spring chicken and it's good to plan in advance these kinds of large endeavors. I'm not planning on giving anything away immediately, but having said that, I I don't have uh, a partner, a wife, I don't have children. I'm just me and the dog and the cat. I have a brother, 14 years younger, who has four children who are all really great and interesting and becoming more interesting. So in conversations with my brother, it's quite clear if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, the library would be a real burden because you you can't sell a library of 4,000 books. They would, whoever took it on would want to cherry pick them. I ended up having a conversation with Johns Hopkins University, to whom I have no affiliation, but they have great libraries, and they were interested. And I said, I would give this to you outright. No, you don't have to pay for it. But we had a number of meetings. We sat down. They actually assigned a student to go through my library inventory and compare it with their libraries plural, every single volume, one by one. And surprisingly, we found that they had about 75% of the library. And they said, we would love to have the 25% that we don't have, but we recognized that would be cherry picking the best. And that's not right. And so I've had that conversation with a couple of other institutions and it's true that there's some overlap and you know if i went to an auction house like swan in new york which has a long history of selling books and libraries they would say okay here's what we want to sell and the rest as far as we're concerned you can put it in a dumpster i i've had conversations with some of the schools where i've taught and they would say, like, well, we could use this, but not all of it. So it, the library would be a real burden to my brother. The photographs are saleable. There are markets for them. <laughs> you, some would go to Christie's and Sotheby's. Some might go elsewhere. Some might end up in London or Paris or whatever. But Or with other dealers, he could contact my colleagues and say, Peter got hit by a bus. Like, what do you want to take? Knock on wood. We have no desire for you to be passing anytime (laughs) soon. Anyway, he could do something effective with the photographs, or he could hold on to them and give them to his kids. But the books are a burden. 
And so I'm actually more concerned now. And a client of mine is very involved in a new contemporary art museum, which has no research library. Perfect. And so there's no overlap. They don't have anything that I have. And so we've started a conversation about maybe what I've got will end up there. And maybe they'll start getting some of it sooner rather than later. Well, I mean, the the whole idea of estate planning, whether you're an artist or a collector and things like this, is, is something that, like, quite honestly, when I started this podcast, it never even crossed my mind. But now that I'm, I have done this and had these conversations with people, I'm like, fuck, I need to start keeping things as an artist. Like, I should keep things because those things are, like, as it was explained to me by somebody, an, an, an actual estate planner, was like, the artwork that we make is great and people love that. It's a commodity, it's bought and sold, collected, etc. But the additional stuff, the paperwork, the journals, the, the, all these, these are the things that will make it so that an artist can be researched in the future. And so therefore can become part of the annals of art history and therefore become more collectible and more desirable and stuff after their passing. And I'm just like, oh my God, that makes so much sense that I never thought of before. Absolutely. I mean, I'm of a generation that I mean, think about it. I I talked about starting collecting kind of in the 80s and since then. The 80s and 90s, I saw a lot of people I knew, a lot of friends die of AIDS. And very quickly, (laughs) way too quickly, became clear that dealing with artists' estates was something... (laughs) they hadn't planned on and we hadn't planned on and like, what are we doing here? And so I was on the board of an organization called photographers and friends United against AIDS. And one of the things we did was give grants very specifically to artists, organizations like visual aids or uh, white columns in New York, where like anybody could drop off slides of their work so that there was some repository. All of that became very important because you had friends who had just gotten sick and died very quickly and left everything behind frequently to people who had no idea what to do with it. And that was definitely one of the legacies of the 80s and 90s. Hopefully we don't run into that so much today. Well, and it becomes a burden on family and loved ones if there is no planning done. Absolutely. Because they don't know that, you know, your closest friend was the librarian at the New York Public Library, and that's where the work might find a home. Yeah, they, they, they frequently have no idea what to do with the work. They'll make a, you know, a half-hearted effort, but finding the right home for an artist who's not Dick Avedon is not so easy. 
you know, we're at a moment right now where Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen are selling their catalogs. That's a glorified way of saying doing estate planning. And Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen have been able to find ready and deep-pocketed audiences for their catalogs. But Chris Isaac, to pick somebody out of a hat, who's a recording artist who I happen to like, or even James Taylor, like, would somebody pay millions for James Taylor's catalog? I would like I to think so, so. but yeah. I, I yeah. maybe, but I, I don't know. And, you know, maybe not until they've bought Bowie's catalog first. Which has been bought recently, but yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that Bowie's catalog had also been <laughs> I believe sold. I read recently that Bowie's catalog was sold, yeah. Okay, yeah. Wait, hold on. I can do a, a search on that. Ah, but... You know, whether it's a recording artist or a visual artist, we're talking about the same thing. You know, what do you do with the archives? What do you do with all the, the, the slides, the negatives? I mean, I had one artist die of cancer, and we, she actually, she came to me through Bruce Weber. Bruce recommended her to me and recommended me to her. And, we had a, a wonderful relationship, a just lovely person. And she knew she was battling cancer, but she didn't write, she didn't make plans and she didn't write a, a clear will. And so I remember being at her memorial service and her husband asking me some questions. And I said, I don't have any of the files. <laughs> Presumably you have them now. And he didn't know anything about it. She hadn't ever told him. I worry about that kind of stuff because like I'm a photographer and I have probably, you know, almost a million digital files. And I'm like, if somebody were to get their hands on that, if I were to pass away unforeseen and look through that, like, First of all, they would edit my my career very differently. Like they would choose the images they think were my best images. That's not necessarily the images I thought were the best images. And so that that's something that actually concerns me. Well, that's one of my problems with the way we regard Gary Winograd and the way we approach Vivian Meyer. Yeah, she had no say. It was all in a trunk. Her entire legacy was constructed by these people posthumously. Like she had yep. no, no input on it. And, and quite honestly, she would probably never have been famous had it not been for that story of the finding it in a trunk and, you know, finding this person's work. Like it's amazing what the stories can do to, to really elevate something like that. I completely agree. I mean, we now have people declaring that Vivian Meyer was an undiscovered genius. And, you know, it's all based on a posthumous edit. And Gary Winogrand, uh, wasn't it John Sharkovsky at MoMA, who basically, you know, did a posthumous edit 
of his work and said, this is why he's a great master. Yeah. And it's a fear. It's a fear that I think a lot of artists have. Like my parents are even getting old. They have a little little collection of art, nothing super expensive and stuff like this. And like, I can't handle it. So like, it's a little bit of a, I hate to say it like, but a burden that I'm going to have to take on when they get too old and they downsize or pass away that the you know it's like what do you do with these things because like some of them are museum quality but not necessarily any museum will take it and so it's sort of like uh, how do how do you deal with that as a, like it's it's a very difficult issue that unfortunately a lot of people don't talk about no not at all i've had numerous incidents where a friend or client will come to me and say like my brother-in-law died and he's got this art collection or he was a photographer or whatever. And what do I do with this? And, you know, in some cases I say like, (laughs) you got to contact the high school that he went to or the college that he went to or the local public library and ask them if they want any of it just to try and find a home for it. You got to be creative in that regard, but uh, where does it all end up? Yeah. Well, all right, let's try and get on a better note. So, right. I was thinking on that cheery note. (laughs) Yeah. So let's transition to something better. I, I do have a silly question. It's super pedantic, but please bear with me. Editions. I'm fascinated by like, because I hear people talk about like big editions, small editions, no editions, you know, sell an original, blah, 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 blah. What I I know, and I know that sort of goes in waves. Like there are times when people love, you know, a number seven editions and they, they like buying number one or they like buying number seven and like it all changes and it all, it's always in flux. But like, what's your sort of position on like size of edition runs? whether or not like number one is the most collectible or the last of the edition is most collectible or the artist proof. Cause like I like artist proofs, <laughs> but what's your position on all that? All right. I have very strong opinions about this and you should remember that I'm frequently in a position of taking on an artist right at the beginning. So they have no idea about editioning and I'm the one usually talking to them about what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to play it out. Now, please educate me. Okay. So first of all, I think additions can, should be small. And I have a very specific reason. Years and years ago, I did research on the history of editioning as a marketing construct. And it actually goes all the way back to James McNeil Whistler in London, who created the idea of a limited edition that would sell out and the the edition would get more expensive as it went on, and then it would no longer be available. Previously, in printmaking or etchings, editioning was all determined by the fact that the plate wore out. And so at a certain point, you just, you couldn't make any more good impressions. But Whistler was the one who said, I'm going to take that concept and turn it into a marketing tool. So 
photography comes along, here's a medium that is just reproducible to the nth degree and has no concept of rarity. And it really wasn't until the development of an organization called APAD, the Association of International Photographic Art Dealers, terrible acronym, but started by Harry Lund and a number of other dealers. And Harry gave a lecture, I believe it was titled, On the Creation of Rarity. And he talked about the concept of additioning in photography. Now, Harry got his start, actually, as a spy for the CIA, but when he uh, had to leave the agency and became a fine art print dealer, originally dealing in like 18th century French prints, he came across a portfolio of work. I believe the, the first photographic work he encountered was a portfolio or a group of pictures by Ansel Adams. And he ended up working with Ansel Adams and Harry was kind of a mentor towards to me. And I'm going to repeat the story that Harry told me. He said, Ansel Adams made that great image, Moonrise Over Hernandez. When was that done? 1940s? That sounds about right. Okay. At the point that Harry met him and started having a relationship with the artist, Ansel had been printing that damn image for about 30 years. Now, you're an artist. Every single artist I know wants to talk about what they're working on today. What is of interest to them today? Not what they did 30 years ago. And you and I both know that Ansel Adams, along with Moonrise over Hernandez, made a great many great images over the course of his long and productive career. And people kept on coming up to him and saying, you know, that Moonrise over Hernandez, I love that picture. And he'd be sitting there with the portfolio box, but uh, I, I've got some great pictures in here that I just took and like, you know, I love that moonrise. It's like, all right, I'll make you a print of moonrise. And one of the reasons why you see the image moonrise over Hernandez changed so much over the years is because Ansel probably got tired of printing it the same way. Like, all right, let's try it a little more contrasty now. Well, maybe I'll do it this way this time. It might be some of the technology, maybe some papers weren't available anymore, some chemicals weren't available anymore, things changed. I mean, yeah. Absolutely. There's so many variables on that. So Harry Lund comes along and he says, all right, Ansel, I'm going to take you on. We're going to work together and we're going to create what's called the master print edition. It's going to be a limited edition. We're going to contact all those museums that have been looking at your work for the last 30 years, but never bitten the bullet and actually bought a damn print. And we're going to go to them and say, you know, this image is in a limited edition and it's not going to be available anymore. So make up your goddamn mind. And that's what happened. And 
the master print editions of Ansel Adams' great images is now essentially sold out. And they, if they ever come on the market, they have acquired great value because Harry introduced the concept of rarity. So I've got a young artist in front of me. And he starts out and he says, you know, like, so what do I do? Editions of 100, 50, 25? And I'm like, no. <laughs> Pick your favorite number under 10. Minus seven. Okay, there we go. If seven is your magic number, that's it. But no more. And, you know, if I had my druthers, I might even say, How, can you live with three? But I said, here's the story. A collector's going to come to me, and I'm going to show them your work. I'm going to introduce them to your work. And maybe they'll recognize what I recognize. Like, there are a couple really great pictures here. And those are the ones that might sell out first. So if the edition is small, the collector comes in and he says, oh, God, I love that picture. And I said, I do too. Unfortunately, it's sold out. I've sold them all. So why don't you take a look at this one, which I think is also pretty nifty. And that's how you move a collector on to other pictures in the body of work or other bodies of work. It's a completely artificial market construct. There's no reason why it has to be limited, but it's a very useful vehicle for the dealer to sell the work. And it's useful to the artist because it becomes a means of saying, sorry, that's sold out. Here's what I'm working on today. Let me show you what I'm working on now. I love it. What's the likelihood that you're going to do an edition of 25 or 50 and actually sell all of them? Maybe with Moonrise over Hernandez, yeah. I think we now know there are something like 400 prints of that image out there. But most artists don't create an image that 400 people want. They're talking to a small audience here. You know, I've always kind of been interested in numbers. Maybe it's the commodity trading background. But I have a lot of friends who are writers. Now, one of the things that's so fascinating is to be a New York Times bestselling author is entirely contextual, meaning if your book comes out during the same week that Stephen King's book comes out, he will sell 500,000 copies in the first day, and you will sell maybe 5,000, and you won't be a New York Times bestseller author. But if you bring out your book in a slow week in August, maybe 5,000 actually is the big seller for the week and you become a New York Times bestselling author. I, I had a medium-sized, small to medium-sized gallery. We would do exhibitions that generally had somewhere between 10 and 20 pictures, depending on the size. If they were editions of three or editions of seven, 
let's do easy math. You're seven, 20 pictures. That's 140 pictures. Well, if I sold 40 pictures, you and I would probably go out for lunch and celebrate, and I'd buy. Absolutely. <laughs> We'd both be happy that we had had a successful exhibition. That's not even a third of the show. And that's at a limited edition. I mean, that means that we managed to reach 40 people, give or take. Maybe some people bought two, or, but, you know, you're not necessarily, you're not Steven Spielberg trying to open up West Side Story. You don't need to reach 56 million people worldwide. It's a different medium, and you're, you're speaking to people differently. You're communicating differently. It's another reason why I like the book. I love the book. book. Yeah, I'm I'm still old school on book publishing. I still want a publisher or some other person to be involved in it. Like I'm not as much as I'd love to like have books produced. I I've kind of refused to self-publish <laughs> cuz like it's going to end up being just a burden. You're just going to have a bunch of books in the, in your storage for de you know a decade until they all sell out. But I know but I, on the other hand, I know a lot of friends that are doing actually sort of a combination of what you're talking about, which is they'll do a book, but they do a limited edition of the book and yes. then that ends up of course selling out very quickly cuz they only make 50 or 100 of them and that's it. Yep. Listen, sometimes you decide you're, you're going out for a drink or dinner, and if somebody comes up to you and wants to give you their number, that's really nice. But other times you decide, you know, that person over there in the corner is really interesting, and I'm going to go up and approach them. <laughs> who, who's uh, zooming who? <laughs> I know. I, I don't get too hung up on anymore. Yeah, hmm. maybe 30 years ago. But, you know, I can actually say that 30 years ago, we thought a color print was out of the ordinary. And we, we thought 30 by 40 was large scale. And it was at that time, admittedly. Right. But now, <laughs> no, <laughs> Andreas Gursky is large scale. <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed. From your perspective of your years of experience and your still current experience like because you're the we're talking about some of this like it's past tense you're still representing artists and young and emerging artists so i guess the question would be like what did what's something that you've noticed that a lot of them are doing probably not well enough like so like what's some some advice for young artists these days that's interesting okay actually i've got it You've got a story. Well, if somebody tells you something, if they give you a piece of advice, follow it. Here, here's the example. I saw an artist at a school portfolio review, and I said, this is kind of interesting why don't you come back to me in six months and show me what you've done since now? And 
I gave that piece of advice to probably five artists that day. Only one of them called me up six months later and said, can I come show you my portfolio again? I want to show you my new work. Not the same work that I saw before, what I've been working on now. And he did. And I looked at it and I said, this has gotten more interesting. Come back to me in another six months. And he did. When again, most artists don't. They, they self-delineate. So if somebody says, this is what I suggest you do, or I, I'd like you to do regarding dealing with me specifically, take me at my word. If I said, come back in six months or follow up or send me an email with some JPEGs in it, do it. Because it's amazing the number of times I kind of open the door a little, but they don't follow up at all. And so I don't have to worry about them anymore because <laughs> they've kind of taken themselves out of my consideration automatically. Yeah, I have to admit, I've done that myself. I, I went to a portfolio review in, in Bratislava, and this guy from Russia runs a museum. He was like, oh, send me an email, follow up. I've got an exhibition that I think this would be beautiful for, all this. And I, I lost his business card. <laughs> and so, like, I was unable to follow Listen, up. Listen, the famous phrase, shit happens, but that specific story I was telling of the kid who came back six months and six months later, he got one more come back again. And he called me up and he said, can I come by and show you some new work? I said, sure. And he said, I want to bring a friend. And I said, okay, sure. Bring the friend. So Roberto De Luna, this artist that I had met at Parsons came and he brought his friend, Ryan McGinley. And that was the first time I saw Ryan's work. They came over in the afternoon. I remember we went through like two pizzas for dinner and they left at something like 11 o'clock. And there was a moment when Ryan was showing me his work and I thought there were 10 pictures in here I want to own. And there was also a moment when we were talking about Larry Clark's work. And I said, you know, the best article I ever read about Larry Clark was a short piece that Vincelletti wrote for the Village Voice. And Ryan reached into his backpack and he pulls out a binder that is really a thick binder and he flips it open. And he says, is this the article that you're talking about? And I said, yeah. And I still kind of get goosebumps thinking about that moment because I realized here's an artist who he, he didn't know we were going to be talking about Larry Clark or Vincelletti or any of this. He was just coming to show me 10 pictures or 20. And yet he was carrying this around with him. And I thought, here's an artist, although he's a kid, He's spending a lot of time thinking about where he's coming from and what other artists are doing. And 
this kid is interesting. And when they left, they said, can you give us an exhibition? And I said, I don't think you're really ready for a New York exhibition. But I went to bed and I slept on it. Next morning I woke up and I was thinking about their pictures, both of them. And I had met somebody who had a a warehouse in London. And he was in the food importing business, but he had an interest in art. And he had come to me at one point and said, like, I want to use this warehouse as an art space. Do you think I'm crazy? And I had told him no. And I saw him online the next morning and I said, Tony, what would you think if I curated a photography exhibition in your warehouse space? And he said, sure, it's really raw, but yeah, you could have it and no charge. And for those of us that know our contemporary art history, we may remember that there was a group of what we call the YBAs, the young British artists, kind of spearheaded by Damien Hirst out of Goldsmiths, who had a warehouse exhibition in London when they were finishing up at Goldsmiths. And this guy named Charles Saatchi came along and basically bought out the show. And that got them started. So I went to went back to Roberta De Luna and Ryan McGinley and said, I don't know about giving you a show in New York, but I have an opportunity. We could do a show in London and you would have to kind of come over and help me install the show and man the space. But you know, it'd be an adventure and I don't know what the space looks like. I don't know. <laughs> I kind of know where it is, but anyway, we ended up doing a call for submissions to, I think we must have gotten hundreds of submissions, and we ended up whittling it down to 16 artists who came from either Parsons or SVA, where I was teaching, the School of Visual Arts. And interestingly, they all knew each other, and they were all taking pictures of each other. And as far as I know, they were all fucking each other. and. We put together the show, and of the 16 artists, uh, well, we had Ryan McGinley, Roberto De Luna, who still has a career, but under a, he's assumed a different name, Hannah Lydon, who is has a contemporary art career, Michelle Cortez, John Arsenault is represented by Clamp Art, Chris Pito works in the photography business, Donnie Cervantes is still involved. Anyway, the point is all 16 of them out of a show, this was, they came to me in 2000. I must have seen Roberto first time in 1999. We did the show in 2001 and um, they're all still doing something with photography. And we got a review. I forget. Uh, I had a friend who wrote for I, I think it was the Observer, and the Saatchi Gallery had just opened up a new venue, and so he wrote, he did a review of the new Saatchi venue, and he said, and oh, by the way, Saatchi got his start uh, for his collection 
spying out of the Goldsmiths warehouse show. And he said, there's another warehouse show going on right now in a really bad neighborhood of London. And the show's called Raw, and it's 16 artists from the U.S., all students, and you should go check it out. And we didn't sell a single piece. I believe Elton John did come see it, like driving up in his roller. But they all came back, and things started happening. I mean, I organized Ryan McGinley's Whitney show making him the youngest artist never to have a solo show in 2003. We started working on it in 2002, right after that Raw show. And all of that came because I did a portfolio review at Parsons, and I told the kid, come see me six months from now. And he followed up. And he followed up. So I've once again told another long, rambling story but that's my word of advice. If somebody opens the door for you, walk through it. It's fabulous advice. This has been so much fun. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk. Matthew, I've really enjoyed it. Questions have all been <laughs> leading questions. <laughs> Wind me up and let me go. <laughs> but that's my job. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation. We would appreciate it if you would share this podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, studio mates, anyone with an interest in the arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Mickey at Cush Audio Services and the music was created by Pete Bybee. As we all know, funding for the arts is incredibly important, and you've got to support and appreciate it when you have it. So I'd like to give appreciation and a thank you to the EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway, which has been supporting the Wise Fool Art Podcast for the past year. They are working in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank Hunt Kastner in Czech Republic and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website at wisefoolpod.com.